This is the Santita Jackson Show. Oh, do I hate to disappoint you? I so hate to disappoint you. Santita is still under the weather. And I'm really sorry. We really wanted to bring her back for you today. She's just not herself yet, but she will be. I'm just not making any more promises. We're just going to wait until she gives us the good word that she's all better. I'm Tori Ryder in for Santita this morning. If you've been listening earlier this week, you've met me already. But if we're just meeting now, nice to meet you. We've got many. I mean, you you will hear today just in the two scant hours that I get to spend with you. You're going to hear about a really cool program um, to move people in neighborhoods where they don't normally study this field into the, the field of engineering, thanks to Wilbur Wright College and a program that was started there. You're going to meet the founder of the program, find out about how people who perhaps never expected to find themselves in that uh, cutting-edge, highly-paid profession are getting there. Also, as we make our way to what the dominant culture calls Thanksgiving and what other people call other things, once had a British boyfriend, he called it Good Riddance Day. That was a long time ago, but I still, I still think of it that way. Um, you're going to find out about an Evanston restaurant that is making sure that even people who don't have food regularly have a little something special all year round, not just at Thanksgiving, but it, it seems like an appropriate time to talk about that. And a fabulous diversion program that you may be very grateful for if you or someone you love ever runs into trouble with the legal system and hopes that it will expand and replicate itself in lots of places so we can get people on a path to being productive members of society, as your parents may have encouraged you to become, rather than inmates. So that'll all be coming up. But first, I would like to predict that you're going to be using this phrase at some point during the next few months. Stand your butt up. What? I hear you. What? Why would I say stand your butt up? Because it's about to be famous. And not for a good reason. Senator Mark Wayne Mullen, who God knows how people get elected to the Senate anymore. He's a former mixed martial arts fighter. Who knew that qualified you for the Senate? The U.S. Senate, where you only get two, count them, two senators. And and what is this guy? He is, I bet you never thought of mixed martial arts fighters as thin-skinned. He is, I, I know you're going to be shocked, he's a Republican senator. He is from Oklahoma, state next door to the state I consider my home state, Kansas. And I can tell you, when I grew up, the behavior of this senator would not have been acceptable. He didn't like 
what the president of the Teamsters Union, Sean O'Brien, had been saying about him on social media. So in your U.S. Senate, yes, the only one that you get to support as an American, he challenged... It's really almost impossible to say this with a straight face. He challenged from from his seat in the Senate. He he challenged the Teamsters head to a fight. Why would I lie to you? Why? It was a congressional hearing. And uh, Mullen read O'Brien's original tweet. I admit it's it's kind of a it's kind of a I mean if you said that to somebody face to face on the street yeah those were fighting words but has the senator never heard of rude social media behavior this is a novelty to him you get trolled by the head of the Teamsters Union and you you can't take it Here's what uh, O'Brien tweeted originally I don't know what we're supposed to call them now that they're not tweets he exed This is the quote. Greedy CEO who pretends like he's self-made in reality, just a clown and fraud always has been, always will be. Quit the tough guy act in these Senate hearings. You know where to find me any place, anytime. Cowboy. The tweet had a hashtag little man syndrome showed a photo of Mullen at a debate when he was standing on a pedestal at a podium. I don't know how tall Mullen is, but I'm guessing I'm guessing he's not NBA material. And here's the weirdest part. Guess who breaks up this bizarro threat, counter threat? Everybody's favorite grandpa, Bernie Sanders. The scene, I mean, it had to have been surreal. Various news outlets caught caught the audio. I think you just heard it in the news. But there's Mullen going, stand your butt up. In a Senate hearing. And it looked like it was actually going to come to blows. And Bernie Sanders said, hey, hey, you're a U.S. senator. I don't know if he said sit your butt down, but for Pete's sakes. You just, I mean, look who's worried about the nanny state. The Republicans are going on and on all the time about the nanny state. But I can tell you, if this senator had a nanny or a mother, they would have told him, what were you told? Sticks and stones. Right. Sticks and stones. What does he think? That the U.S. Senate is some kind of weird world wrestling federation? Is he going to pick up the head of the Teamsters over his head and body slam him into some... Ma- what is What is happening? I'd like to blame Donald Trump for this. I really would. The lack of civility... But I, I mean, unless, and I don't know, I should check when, to see when this guy was elected, if, if he was elected around the same time that the death of courtesy in the form of Donald, I'm not a thief, Trump, got elected to the presidency. I'd like to know if, if um, and I'll look, I should check, sorry, I, I'm disappointing you. I, I would like to know when... Mr. Senator Mullen of Oklahoma actually showed up. Maybe he was encouraged in his ways by the now ex-president and possible future convict. But 
I'm guessing that whether or not the Donald had ever been sworn in disgracing the highest office in our nation, I'm guessing Senator Mullen wouldn't have had any better manners. You kind of wonder, like, how does he behave in other settings? I mean, is the senator the kind of person who would come to your house for Thanksgiving and throw the gravy boat if he didn't like what you had to say about his politics? I mean, where, where is the restraint? Where is the filter? Where is the editor on these people? Everything they say and feel just comes right out their mouth. Perhaps you have a relative like this. How, what's the best way to handle people like this? I mean, typically you just ignore ignore the bully. But if you're forced to deal with somebody who's challenging you to, to a fist fight, telling you to stand your butt up, what, what do you actually... What are you expected to really do? And what has happened? Is this is this just men? Am I missing something here because of my gender? Here, here is the conversation at the hearing. Mullen said, that would be Senator Mullen said, sir, this is a time. This is a place. You want to run your mouth? We can be two consenting adults. By the way, that sort of sounds like he wants to be intimate with him, but it doesn't. I don't think he meant that. We can be two consenting adults. We can finish it here. Okay, that's fine. Perfect, O'Brien said. You want to do it now? Mullen replied. Weirdly, again, weirdly, this sort of sounds like a porn flick script. You could read this totally the different way. But that's not, I want to say, that's not how it was meant. It's clear. They, they, were, they were planning to settle it with their fists. Okay, that's fine. Perfect, O'Brien said. You want to do it now, Mullen replied. I'd love to do it right now, O'Brien said. Then stand your butt up then, said Mullen. You stand your butt up, said O'Brien. I mean, at some point you want the teacher to go out and say, everybody in from recess, English. Time for English. What happened to these people? How, how on earth I mean, if you had a senator who behaved this way, thank God for our senators who know how to behave here in Illinois. If you're listening in another state, you probably—I happen to know where else you'd be listening. In some cases, in some cases, this would never happen to your U.S. senators. Others of you listening elsewhere. If you're listening from one of those states where you can imagine your senator, how does that feel? Because you don't, the, to me, it feels like you don't even want to ever leave the country and have to answer for these people. As an American, when you travel, or perhaps in this case as an Oklahoman, you go visit Kansas, you just want to take these people by the scruffs of their necks and just shake them like puppies. Just give him a scruff shake. Hey, you guys. Mullen then stood up and the committee chairman, Senator Bernie Sanders of Vermont, stopped the altercation from happening, yelling at Mullen, stop it. No, no, sit down. You know you are a United States senator. 
<laughs> Lord. <laughs> uh, maybe he doesn't. People are going on and on these days about Joe Biden, you know, maybe not being in his full capacity, which, by the way, is horsewash. I mean, he's old, but his style has always been to sort of wait. He waits like a praying mantis. He waits until his prey is just right there. And then all of a sudden, all you see of the prey is the head. The rest is eaten. That's Joe, just kind of looking like he did before. Just grabs whoever his opponent is, chomps him down in half, and then looks like the same nice old grandpa he's always looked like. He's not slow. He's resting. That's his resting face. Meanwhile, I'd like to say, so I'd like to say Donald Trump is losing his capacity, but he's always been a whack job. Always. I mean, there are some people in the world you think when they lose it, who's going to know? That's one. But so there's there's Bernie Sanders, Bernie Sanders of all people, telling playing recess monitor, hall monitor, Bernie Sanders. You know, the one with the meme with the mittens. The whole scene is just meanwhile, on the other side of the Congress. The former Speaker of the House, Kevin McCarthy, almost got into a fist fight with, I forget the name, one of the eight, who, who he accused of, the other guy, the one of the eight, accused McCarthy of elbowing him in the kidney. Uh, okay, let, let's just kind of do a quick little inventory. We've got Lauren Boebert practically having sex in a production of Beetlejuice. We've got Kevin McCarthy allegedly elbowing his further to the right colleague in the hallway. And then the two of them yelling at each other, nearly getting to fight. Then we have the senator and the head of the Teamsters Union being broken up by, God love him, Bernie Sanders. The whole thing is horrible kindergarten class. If this were the class where your kid had to go to school, you would pull that kid out and homeschool him. You'd say, you know what? I don't want to send you to that place. It's nothing but bullies and kids from difficult circumstances. I'm sure they they could act better if somebody had raised them right. That's, that's, uh, it's a horrible situation. I mean, it's sort of funny in an awful way. Are you noticing a trend, though? Your thoughts, your thoughts about the misbehavior. Your thoughts about the lack of decorum. And if you're a parent with young children and, and they watch you watching the news or a grandparent, I don't care. How would you explain this behavior to young children who, who you want to have an appreciation for the news and a value um, value our country and, and who we are in the world. And you have to explain this. Imagine you have to explain this to a kid. What do you say? What do you say? Here is the number to call or text us here at WCPT, Chicago's Progressive Talk. 773-763-WCPT. That's 773-763-WCPT. By the way, on the subject of explaining this to children, 
I have to tell you, um, I, I do a podcast, as many of you know, and you can find it. Just Google Tory Writer Podcast. It'll come up. But uh, my regular podcast partner is recovering from surgery. So the world's second toughest mom um, filled in for her this week. Her name is Kim McAllister. She's a radio pro and an online radio show pro with tons of listeners. But she was kind enough, and because she's my old friend, to, to co-host with me this week. And she she would probably be able to pick up these senators and Congress people and school them and make sure that they get it right. But I wouldn't even know what to say. I would not know what to say if I if my kids were little. Thanks to Andy for texting in. I agree. It's horrifying. It is horrifying. And if these people weren't seriously in charge, I mean, look how close votes are right now. Look how close. And here's another thing I was thinking to myself. And I don't know if you've had this thought. The old line Republicans are now closer to being Democrats in their views than they are to being these whack job make out in the Beetlejuice theater and try and stuff a gun in your bra on the on the floor of the U.S. Congress. They're more like they're more on the left than they never meant to be. And part of me thinks, let's just ask them to change parties. Part of me wants to say to uh, Maine Senator, just just come on over here. So much more civilized over here. But I don't I don't know that the that the, the the stink, the taint, the the I don't know, the miasma of creepiness and misbehavior, I don't know that it hasn't worn off on all of them at this point. How can you associate look, every party's always had a certain number of whack jobs. Every party. Not just Gesundheit. That's Henry. When you call, you get Henry. And you'll know him because he sneezes. It's cute. Don't worry, I've done every single, I've done just about every bodily function that you could do in a restaurant right here in front of this microphone. Fear not, feel better. Um, But how do you, how do you explain this? And do you think that anybody wearing the Republican Party moniker now has sort of had this, this aura of complete... I don't know, malfeasance, misbehavior, irresponsibility, juvenile juvenile behavior. Do you feel like at this point they're all swimming in the same disgusting pool? Or are there any exceptions anymore? Mitt Romney just wrote a book with a writer from, I think, from The Atlantic. And I heard the author interviewed and he said, you know, um, Mitt Romney uh, felt like his party had had, um, and I, these are my words, not the not the authors. It sort of cast him out, and the interviewer of the co-writer asked repeatedly, "Does Romney feel he regret for having supported this party under Trump? This party that was creating and supporting people like Mister Stand Your Butt Up." Um, does he feel like in any way responsible? And the author said, you know, he, he, he came close. He walked right up to that line. So again, with, with the whole 
mommy nanny school here. I remember distinctly, may not have been my parents, but in Kansas, everybody's parents were your parents. I remember, I think it was my dad who said, you are going to be judged not just by your own behavior, but by the behavior of those with whom you associate. And I think that's true. I had to tell my own kid who had a little difficulty in high school, one of them, the small cutie. I had to say, look, you know, one of these days, if you misbehave, when our beloved Chicago police pull you over, you're all going to be in trouble. It doesn't matter who was doing what at that moment. It matters that you're together. And I would say it matters that you're together for the whole Republican Party at this time. I keep trying to issue exemptions for my dear and longtime friends, the regular Republicans. But at what point do we say, it, you know, you, you can't get away with this. You can't be in this party, associate yourself with senators who are demanding that people stand up and fist fight and Congress people who are allegedly elbowing each other in, in the kidney for all I know, kneeing each other in the groin, and other Congress people who are ripping their décolletage out at theatrical performances and say that you're not one of them. My thought. So, tweet, text, (laughs) let me know, how would you handle this? If it were if it were you in charge and you had to explain this insane, it is it is insane, truly. In a Senate hearing, stand your butt up. Indeed, come on. Poor Bernie Sanders. One of these days, someone is. One of these days, he's going to try and break up one of these fights, and I. You know, when Bernie was running, there was a Bernie Sanders bobblehead. They're going to actually make Bernie Sanders into a bobblehead. Like someone's going to hit him by accident, and that'll be that. I don't know. Maybe I can trace my ancestry back to some other country. Maybe maybe I'm not really from here. I'm starting to feel like maybe I'm being tainted. I know that I'm being tainted with this behavior. We were just in Canada and and I wanted to put on that shirt that my friend had during the uh, Bush administration. Back when we remember when we thought Bush was as crazy as it could get and the t-shirt said, I didn't vote for him and I don't want to talk about it. If, if If I could change the dress code of the U.S. Senate, That's the T-shirt I'd be wearing. 628 WCPT Sancita Jackson Show. More in a minute. This is the Santita Jackson Show. Six thirty-three. It is the Santita Jackson Show. I am Turi with you, rider like the truck. In for Santita, who's under the weather. We thought she'd be back today, but we all hope she's feeling better by tomorrow. 
It's good to be with you and in in the in the atmosphere of Santita singing, we can change the world. You've probably heard that uh, there are small efforts of beauty and kindness everywhere and a call to participate. Some chefs in Chicago and Evanston have done exactly that. You may have heard of the community refrigerator, the community freezer. If you haven't, let me introduce you to someone who can tell you more about it and who is really a running point on it from uh, Evanston. She is trained as a writer and a chef, which is so cool. She wanted to be a food writer originally, and then she became the CEO of Soul and Smoke. I mean, it didn't just happen overnight. She worked really hard to do it. Heather Bublik, welcome to WCPT. Thanks for, for being with us this morning. Thank you so much for having me. You took a really fascinating path to restaurant and food and cuisine and all of that fancy stuff that I am not good at naming. But we asked you to talk about... Um, the Community Fridge Program, how you're participating, other Chicago um, g- uh, chefs are participating. Just tell us a little about that. Yeah, so we, um, in 2021, um, started hosting an Evanston Community Fridge outside of our restaurant. Um, during the pandemic, we had been providing community meals. So this was kind of a natural transition as the world began to open up again. And we've hosted this fridge. It's is a walking, um, that's a bad word, but it, it is a revolving like turn style. Like it is constantly in motion. It is frequently empty, but there's always somebody either filling it from the community or someone taking food out of it from the community. It's available 24 seven and whoever needs no questions asked. There's always a fridge outside our restaurant where people can grab. There's a pantry, a freezer, and then a refrigerator. Wow. Um, the community sells it. We sell it. Yeah. That takes up a lot of space though. I mean, where is it on a sidewalk? Is it in an alley? Where physically where does one put a community fridge? I know the little free libraries just had to fight for their little free lives in Chicago. Where where does one put a community fridge? Yeah, I mean, it's kind of on our sidewalk esque. We have like um like a little patch of like bushes and then our sidewalk. So it's kind of in that area, huh. um, but it's right in front by our um, door. I, I've seen them festively painted elsewhere. Is yours just, I would recognize it as a regular fridge from Home Depot, or does it look kind of arty, or what What does it resemble? Um, it looks kind of arty. Ours was painted a couple of years ago. It is due for a refresh. Um, we have an artist picked out who's going to be um, refreshing it and making it more arty. Um, you know, the weather and all the things. Yes, but it is Chicago. Nothing is unscathed. Absolutely. <laughs> Absolutely. But there is like a wooden shelter for it. Cool. Um, that kind of protects it from the, the winter. Oh, well, that's nice. Again, like a giant yeah. little free library, only with food. So exactly. Who who is participating? And do people coming to the refrigerator or freezer or pantry do they do they seem to feel okay about it, or do you notice that they they seem to feel embarrassed about it, or do you ever encounter the actual people who use it and visit with them? Yeah, I mean, it, it's I think it kind of gives people back their dignity um, in a sense. Um, I never really see anybody feeling embarrassed about it, but um, you know, there, there's very much like you get to shop and choose the food that you want. I see people kind of pull over. They open it up. Some people just leave if they don't see something that they want. 
but it kind of enables them to pick and choose. So is the food that you put in there, is it labeled so you could see that, you know, oh, this is chicken, oh, this is fish, oh, this is a vegetarian dish? Or do they just sort of pick a, a, a random thing and hope that they're going to like it because they need food? Sure. Everything is labeled. We also have a lot of members of the community who donate food. Um, because we're in Evanston, Northwestern donates about once a week. Um, we have, like, Whole Foods who donate sometimes. Um, so there's always a rotation of different foods in and out of the fridge. What is the rule about that? Could you make something in your kitchen and like, oh, I baked this tuna casserole and I'm going to put it in a portable container and I'm going to leave it at the community fridge. Could you do that? Or does it have to meet certain qualifications? You absolutely can make a tuna casserole and put it in the fridge. Our number one recommendation is to kind of put it into individual containers. Oh, Um you know, just because, like, a big casserole is harder, I think. Huh. Um, certainly there are families that take from the fridge. Um, but the families tend to take, I feel like, ingredients. Um, we have an unhoused population in Evanston. They tend to take the prepared meals. Mm-hmm. So it's a good it's a good mixture. I wouldn't have thought of that. And the pantry, I'm assuming, then, is also ingredients more for people who have a kitchen but perhaps nothing to cook in it. Exactly. Got it. So tell me a little bit about the restaurants and chefs who participate and how they came to participate. Did you call them? Did they find you? What What are their responses when you ask them? Yeah, you know, every holiday season, there's always a bigger need, and we always want to make sure that it's, like, extra full fridge. Mm-hmm. So um, I reached out to Sarah Stegner um, from Chicago Chef's Cook and asked her what she thought about, you know, asking other chefs around Chicago to help contribute to it, you know, like one day and sponsor like 20, 25 meals so that it could stay extra full around the holidays. And the chefs really have embraced the idea. They have all signed up for dates throughout the holiday season um, to help fill our fridge, which we're so excited about. The, the people that rely on our fridge, it's going to, you know, kind of be that extra present that they're not even expecting. Do you find, I'm in, in my neighborhood, there are a lot of houseless people. I live in Uptown in Chicago. And it, it's kind of amazing. Sometimes I walk under that Lakeshore Drive underpass where there is a big encampment. And I've, I yeah. always feel mixed about seeing that there are folks who've dropped off whole meals and sometimes they don't seem to be particularly appreciated. I'm guessing that the people who come to the fridge, they're coming, they're choosing, they 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 really do appreciate it. But do you find that sometimes you deal with people with mental health challenges who are particular or difficult or complain? Because I can tell you that, I will just give you an experience. I, I bought an extra Chinese restaurant meal for somebody and, and uh, someone who had a, you know, a dog and a, a thing where you could give them money and they were sitting. And I said, I brought you a meal. And, and the person actually looked at the bag and said, I don't like Chinese food. And I just thought, okay, all right, I give up. But do, do, how do you work that out with people with mental health challenges who may give you difficulty about the food that you put out? Or maybe that never happens. Yeah, you know, I think because we've been feeding the community for so long, um, it's kind of leveled out where everyone that's coming to the fridge is really appreciative of it. Um, most people that will come to the fridge, we're around the corner. 
um, from Connections for the Homeless's main offices. Ah. So a lot of times, like, they'll come in, they'll ask if they can, you know, have their food reheated. Oh. Um, there hasn't been um, too many t- too many instances. There's always a few every once in a while, but it's very few and far between. Oh, good to know. I can tell you when it happened. I was just, uh, my eyes could not have rolled further back. And there's a lot of that. It's weird. But we won't go there too much. I'm fascinated with the idea that people feel comfortable coming into your very nice restaurant. I, I passed it. Um, and, and asking you to reheat food. I, I'm assuming you'll reheat anybody's food if, if they ask you. How do they yeah. find out that they can do that? The word gets around. Like if, if you want your dish hot, just bring it in and the chef will or the cook will or the waitress will arrange for it to be reheated for you. Um, you know, I guess maybe it's not, you know, public information, um, but those that know, know, and, you know, they'll come in. Otherwise, I believe they'll go to Connections and have and reheat it there. Got it. And does it come, this is just a picky little question, but what about the garbage from the, if people are eating these foods in these containers, there was a big war, I remember like 10 years ago in Uptown about a soup truck and the neighbors got mad because the homeless people, um, the homeless encampment there of houseless neighbors would would eat their soup and then just chuck the garbage all over the the plastic spoon the styrofoam container how have the neighbors been about this and how is the area around where you're serving this food um you know there is a garbage can there there are community members who you know do help fill the fridge they do help you know clean it out every you know every few days certainly um, there's also like a Facebook group support the Evanston community fridge. So like there, there's always like someone who's like, Oh, the fridge is really, you know, um, I was filling it and the fridge was a mess. Can someone get there today, you know, and straighten it up. So there's a lot of, um, good community engagement around that as well. Oh, I love hearing that. And I noticed that on your list of participating chefs, some of them are in Chicago. Are there other community fridges in the area? There are. I know that Evanston has a few, um, we're the only one in the fifth ward. But there are a few um, in Evanston, and then there are fridges called Love Fridges in the city of Chicago. I believe there's about 12 of them, hmm. um, you know, around town. So is there a, a website where people can go to find out where the nearest one to them is so that they can participate in some way? Or is there a sign-up site where people can participate? Absolutely. Um, Love Fridge has its own website. Um, I don't know it off the top of my head. Um, and then Evanston Community Fridges also has, I believe, a website um, with a map of the fridges. And so you would just, you would Google like Community Fridge or Love Fridge and that would come up. Tell me some stories, if you can, of interactions that you've seen or experienced yourself of people interacting with the food and the fridge and the community people who fill it. I'll bet you have some good stories. Um, you know, it's really just heartwarming to see. Um, there's people that have been coming to our fridge. Since it started, there's people that have been coming to, um, you know, get meals from us since deep in the pandemic. We started a community meal program um, in March of 2020 where we were just like, we have food and we had staff. So we started putting out meals out our front door. Um, And that kind of morphed into being sponsored by the Evanston Community Foundation. Um, So we were doing at one point 200 meals a day to the Evanston community. And, you know, we started seeing a lot of those same families that were identified by the school district as being food insecure, coming to our fridge and really developing relationships with them. That's lovely. Um, This is maybe my wishful thinking, but are there any 
people you've served who then improve their circumstances and circle back and become contributors to the community fridge? Well, I'm sure in some sense. Um, I don't necessarily know any of those stories, but, you know, I think that generally when you when you receive it only makes sense that when you can, that you pour back into your own community. One would absolutely hope. One would. So tell me, yeah. as long as I have you on the air, tell me a little bit about your, your restaurant, your place, what you do. Yeah, so we're based in Evanston. We are a soul food and barbecue concept. Um, during pre-pandemic, we were exclusively a catering company. And obviously, when the pandemic hit, all of our catering went away. Yeah. Um, so we really pivoted into Soul and Smoke, which was kind of our second brand at the time. It was our drop-off catering. It was a lot of corporate orders, things like that. And we started the community meals and then kind of morphed into selling food out of our front door, like very much how restaurants were operating at that time. Yeah. Um, restaurants weren't open, so all we were doing was takeout. So you we started a takeout grab program. A, with a pole and a hook, a 10-foot pole, and kind of fish it out of the restaurant that way. <laughs> Exactly. Yes. So I we're remember. like, you know what? We'll sell brisket sandwiches. We'll just figure it out and started, you know, selling brisket sandwiches and cups of mac and cheese and turned into a barbecue restaurant. I'm so um, glad you came built- through. You came through the pandemic with your good deeds and your reputation and a business intact. That's amazing. Yeah. It, it you know, I'll just say it worked out, but it worked out. Um, and, you know, right now we're building out um, our full restaurant in Evanston. We're still very much our commissary kitchen. We have a couple picnic tables and a counter now, but building out like a fuller restaurant in Evanston. Um, and then we also, because our catering infrastructure was intact during the pandemic, once yeah. we started to go in Evanston, we opened a ghost kitchen in Avondale and one in the South Loop. Ah, yes. Oh, you want to yeah, explain? So then, wait, wait, explain. Not everybody yeah. knows what a ghost kitchen is. So tell people what a ghost kitchen is. Yeah, ghost kitchens are fascinating concepts. During the pandemic, um, it worked really well for us because it kind of was exactly what restaurants were, just to-go operations. Um, So people could go there. They can order off a kiosk, and there's like 15 different restaurants, and they'll bring your food out. You can also order online, have it delivered, um, things like that. So we did do it um, for about a year. Wait, I want to make sure people understand, and I want to make sure I understand. So there'd be like a cooking facility, and three or four restaurants would be working in that same facility, providing their restaurant food for pickup at that same location. Do I have that right? Yeah, I mean, there'd be like more like 15 like little kitchens. So everyone had like their own private kitchen that were about like 150 square feet. They were tiny. Uh Uh-huh. But, you know, efficient. And there'd be like one hood, a set of sinks, and then you could bring in whatever equipment you needed. And you can just, you know, make your food and send it out. That's so cool. I don't think I realized. I knew a little about ghost kitchens, but I didn't know that there were so many of you gathered under one exhaust vent, as it were. So so that was how you made it through. And you still have the ghost kitchens. There's a ghost kitchen near where I live, but I think mostly what they supply is bar food. So... I I, sure. I think I have the concept a little bit wrong, and I'm glad you explained it. Are there people who specifically patronize your catering business or your carryout business because you're the you're the chef you're you're the chef doing the community fridge? I want to support you because you support the community fridge. Do you get a lot of that? Um, I think in the beginning, I think certainly people um, that's how they found out about us. That's how they knew about us, um, especially in Evanston. Um, you know, there was so much noise around the community efforts. 
And then we opened up to go probably six to eight months into the community efforts. Uh-huh. So like that certainly helped propel us. I mean, we literally opened up on Grubhub. I was like posting on like support Evanston restaurant. Try us out. <laughs> you know, no one had really heard about us. Um, so that certainly I think helped. I'm glad. By all means. That's good to hear. Yeah. Um, if you just if you walked out on a typical day and looked in your community fridge pantry freezer, um, what would you be asking people to put in there that that seems to never be enough? If if a group of people wanted to drop by. Uh, what should they drop off? What's the most needed food? What are some of the most needed food items? Uh, fresh foods. People really appreciate when there's produce in there. That's probably the biggest one um, that goes really fast. Um, and then milk. Oh, Surprisingly milk. enough. That yeah, is milk interesting. is a big one. I had no idea. Especially like families with kids. Huh. Um, milk's a big one. That is really interesting. I guess coming up on the holidays, the kids don't get milk in school. And we have certainly marketed milk as the, the magic elixir that you're supposed to provide for your child in childhood. Um, so that yeah. I guess that makes a sort of sense. And then you want like the gallons or is that supposed to be in small, like single packages too? Um, gallons work, I think. Oh, good. Okay. Yeah. So I think you've given people a, a general idea. Is there anything you do you want to talk about some of the ethnic food? I think it's I was looking at the list and I noticed you have an Ethiopian restaurant that provides food. Are there people who talk about how it really is significant that you have culturally diverse food in the fridge cuz I thought that when I looked at the list of people providing meals. Absolutely. I think people want to eat food that they're familiar with, that they're comfortable with. You know, every everyone has their own customs, their own traditions, their own comfort foods, those foods that make them feel like they are home. Mm-hmm. Um, so having a good variety and things that relate to the community is important. Um, we're in the Fifth Ward in Evanston, which is historically the red-lined black neighborhood. Yes. Um, so, you know, that's always, you know, top of mind. That would be, yes, very important. Um, give me just a little, a quick list of the restaurants just so we can uh, applaud them as well, of the restaurants and chefs that are bringing food to your community fridge, if you don't mind spending a minute doing that. No, not at all. Um, I don't have the list in front of me right now. But oh, give that's me one okay. Second. I'll give you a second. I'm happy to do Perfect. that. <laughs> Um, so Sarah Stegner from Prairie Grass Cafe, um, she helps with the effort with me, which was amazing. She's an amazing leader, an amazing friend, um, to just from Demera, the Ethiopian restaurant. Right. We have Arshia from Berzenay, um, providing meals, Mary from Saigon Sisters, Devin Quinn and Jody Fife from Eden, the Paramount Group, um, Sandra Hall from Floreal. Um, Sam Rathanapas from Nacorn. Um, they're in Evanston. They're also providing meals. Darnell Reed from Luella's Southern Kitchen. Um, Beverly and um, Beverly Kim and Johnny Clark from Parachute um, are also doing it, as well as Alex DeSalvo from DeSalvo's Pizza, which is another Evanston restaurant. And then last but not least, we have Debbie Gold from Latour, which is also an Evanston restaurant. Can, um, can I just say, these are places I wouldn't even dream of eat, being able to eat at a couple of these places. That's so cool. I mean, it, yeah. it must be really the affirming. The chef community. Yeah, go ahead. Yes. I'm sorry. Go ahead. No, no. Um, the chef community is so generous. You know, food is love and food is hope and food is community. And 
so many times, you know, we get called for raffles and auctions and every gala and to be able to just provide a warm meal is something so simple that we all can do. And it means the world. I really like that attitude. And I think that you, that, that puts it really well. So we'll just, we'll leave it there and people should stop by soul and smoke and um, bring something for the fridge or the freezer or the pantry. And uh, they'll know that they're doing exactly what you're describing. And you don't have to be a fancy chef. You can make a tuna casserole in a small serving as Heather advises single servings are preferred. Go cook something. Thank you so much for being with us, Heather. I really appreciate it. It's been it's been good to meet you electronically, and I'll look forward to stopping by your place as well. Absolutely. Thanks. Thank you so much. My pleasure. 655 WCPT. I am Tori Ryder in for Santita, and um, I, I'm wondering if you've experienced this kind of... Um, this kind of effort on either end of it. I would love to hear your thoughts about it. Phone number here, 773-763-WCPT. Um, I've, I, the, the, my experience has pretty much been at my house of worship. You know, they have, there's a list of the local, um, nonprofit that provides meals for people without money or who can't provide their own meals. And they usually have a list of what they want. And it's usually stuff that doesn't involve cooking. In fact, in my experience, it's never involved cooking. It's we need breakfast cereal. Um, we need peanut butter. We need stuff that doesn't spoil so people can fill their pantries and always have something to eat. And there's usually a list. But the idea that there would be a place where you could actually cook something and bring it in a weird way, in America, we're all like, no, there's got to be a rule that would keep you from doing that. It's kind of cool that so far, no rule. You want to whip up a, a big pot of spaghetti and meatballs and then divide it into individual servings? You get to do that. Very cool. And and uh, I guess it'll be good for your local dollar store when you stop by for all those little containers that they... They would like you to put stuff in. I'm not sure what what I would bring, but I would like to do that. I think that'd be fun. And of course, being mindful that people are. I mean, my guess is don't don't bring soup. That's that would be a tough one. But I could be wrong. It sounds like there there are people who will who will enjoy anything, and there are people with their own kitchens and just nothing to cook in them. Imagine that you're choosing between rent and food, and you manage to pay the rent. But what, what are the kids going to eat? Weirdly, um, I was aware of how food insecurity plays in not just to people who don't have funds, but um, people who are in domestic abuse situations. And the thing that brought this to my attention was the now convicted head of um, the, was it the Stuart Rhodes, what the, which group? Is it Oath Keepers with Stuart Rhodes or is it, no, it's, I think it's Oath Keepers that Stuart Rhodes ran um, until his trial after the insurrection. But his ex-wife gave a whole series of interviews about what it was like to be his battered wife. And, and one of the forms of domestic abuse was that he didn't give her money for food. He he didn't he he had fundraising. He was buying fancy weapons and he was buying a whole collection of handmade knives. Meanwhile, the kids were living on oatmeal 
and apples. That's what they bought. And it was just, it was a horrifying thought to imagine. And they weren't allowed to go to school. God, no. He had them out in the wilderness somewhere. So there are these kids, and there are a lot of them, and they're living next to hundreds of thousands of dollars of his tactical gear and handmade collectible knives and specialty weapons. And they were living on oatmeal and apples. I think they interviewed one of the kids. I think he said dried apples. That's what she could feed them. They couldn't even have the proverbial hot lunch at school. It really makes you aware of the power of food, not just to heal, but also to harm. So definitely consider something for your community fridge. Santita Jackson's show. I am Tori Ryder in for Santita. It's 6.58. We are Chicago's Progressive Talk. I'm Tori Ryder. And in a moment, a diversion program you should know about. This is the Santita Jackson Show. It is Santita Jackson's show. I am Tori Ryder in for Santita, who is still not quite 100%. Hoping she's back tomorrow, but in the event that she's not, I guess I'll be here. You can find me elsewhere when I'm not here. Um, I'll be in on the 22nd for Joan Esposito. And also, if you just Google Turi T with you, T-U-R-I, Rider Like the Truck, uh, you'll find all kinds of places if you don't get a chance to connect with me today on the show. Have you ever brought your car to the car wash and you know that feeling when your car kind of locks in and you just have to go. You, you don't have any choice. Here comes the wax. Here comes the soap. Here comes the not in that order. You know what I'm talking about. The criminal justice system can be a lot like that. Once you're locked into that first moment when you're when your wheels hit that metal lock, it's very hard to get off the conveyor belt that's going to take you to the end of the line. But there is a plan. There is a group. There are some innovative, resourceful, caring people who are creating an alternative. It's a restorative justice program, the Cook County Circuit Court Restorative Justice Court. And you're going to meet two extraordinary people who have spent a lot of time and energy investing in young men before they get completely locked into that system. So... Please meet Cook County Circuit Court Judge Donna Cooper and Assistant State's Attorney Jamal Jackson. Welcome, both of you. Glad to have you on CPT. Thank you. Thank you. Good morning. Glad to be here. Oh, you're up early. Who wants to start by explaining the restorative justice program and uh, how it works? And then I'd like that next person to talk about the kind of folks you're helping. Well, I'll start. Okay. Uh, the restorative justice program is an opportunity to give uh, first-time offenders an, uh, a chance not to go to regular court. We deal with cases that are nonviolent felonies, uh, misdemeanors, 
and it's uh, usually a first-time offenders, although some, um, not all are. Maybe some had a juvenile case or something like that. But we give them the opportunity to go through our program, uh, which is very different from the criminal court system. It's an opportunity to correct things in their lives. It's an opportunity to uh, repair the harm that they've done uh, by committing that crime. And it's an opportunity to give them a chance just to improve their lives, I believe. What what kind of crimes, um, I, I guess we'll go to you, uh, Mr. Jackson, what kind of crimes are we looking at that these young men are um, in trouble for? Um, yeah, good morning. Thanks for having me. Um, the types of crimes that we look for are just... Um, well, it's a wide range of just nonviolent offenses going from misdemeanor to felony. Um, so that can be things such as uh, burglary. Um, that can be things including, um, you know, theft, fraud. Um, and more recently, we've had an uptick in uh, gun possession cases, not using, but just the uh, possession of guns, um, drugs as well. Um, we have, you know, look for those young entrepreneurs that need to get put on the right track. Um, and yeah, so it's a wide range of, uh, of cases. How, how do you spot, um, how do you spot judge Cooper, a likely candidate for the program? Are you the person spotting this young man could really benefit or is it you, Mr. Jackson, who says, you know, I've got, I've got somebody here who I think could really benefit because I'm guessing there are a lot more people who could benefit than you actually can serve at any given time. But maybe I'm wrong about that. No, you're correct. The Um, state's attorney's office actually does. That's how Mr. Jackson speak. Go ahead. Yeah, so we um, have a group. um, So I'm part of the alternative prosecutions unit with my office. We have individuals who are assigned to um, sit in what used to be bond court is now called the court of first appearance. And pretty much every morning, you know, with all the arrests that come in through bond court or a first appearance court, um, they screen the cases based on um, the age, the type of offense and where the individual lives. So we have three, um, just to give more context, we have three alternative, um, I'm sorry, restorative justice courts throughout the county. We're in the process of opening a fourth one in the suburbs, um, and uh, there's a pilot program that's kind of countywide. But as of right now, we only have the uh, North Lawndale, Inglewood, and Avondale restorative justice courts. So the individuals, the candidates would be young people charged with nonviolent offenses, um, that live in the live work and worship in the Inglewood, Avondale, or North Lawndale communities. So you approach. Let's say you've got somebody who's in trouble for burglary, and and you approach this person who's probably scared, right? Um, and and maybe coming from a a place where they don't have a lot of security in their lives. And how do you approach the person? What do you say to them? Uh, what do you offer them on the first conversation so that they will take an interest? Um, yeah, so uh, I would be um, lying if I said that I was the one that had that experience. Because usually the offer that gets made um, is made to their uh, defense attorney, and the defense attorney has that initial conversation. Ah. Once the case gets sent, yes, because we flag it, and we, you know, it's considered an offer. Ah. Um, so they still have to accept it. But once they get to the restorative justice courts, the conversation there, the first people they meet with are circle keepers, members of our community, 
and then um, they sit in front of the judge and the rest of the um, restorative justice team. And it's kind of the first thing you want them to know is that this isn't a traditional courtroom. You know, we don't meet in a traditional courthouse. We meet in the community centers in the respective neighborhoods. Um, and you're in a different space, basically. We try to let them know that they're in a space where we care about them and we care about their story. And, you know, this isn't traditional court. That is pretty we, cool. We, I have no idea. Judge, go ahead. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. We've also had judges refer uh, participants to our program, as well as some police uh, officers have uh, referred uh, participants to our program. Huh. That is neat. So so here comes, and it's all men, as far as I understand it, in this particular program. That's right? They're nope. all No? That's not correct. Oh. We've had women, too. Oh, cool. I'm glad, because the, the article that I read talked about some graduates and mentioned they were all men, but it could be women also. So... You, a lower percentage of women. Why do you think that is? Women are doing fewer crimes or they're just, what's the reason? Well, I like to believe women are doing fewer crimes. I like to believe that. Too. We'll, we'll take that. We'll take that as an answer and I'm going to go with it because you're the judge. So, um, so you have these young people and I'm guessing that they're scared and you sit them down as, as you mentioned, Mr. Jackson, in a non-traditional setting. And, and how, I mean, a lot of the kids that I see around Uptown, they, they've got a pretty good front up. You can't, you can't necessarily get right to their hearts. So, but, but you seem to do it. What's the technique to, to say, you know, this is serious and we seriously want to help you? Um, and, and what needs of theirs can you address? How, how does that happen? Well, first of all, when they come in, they meet with our circle keepers, and our circle keepers are wonderful. Our circle keepers have, uh, some of them have been in the position of those young people, and they understand uh, their lives. So the ice is broken with them. And uh, once we get the ice broken with them, once they understand that we're here, we care about them, that we're here to help them, then they come to the regular court. And everybody that sits at the table in the court, from the clerk to the state's attorney, the public defender, has a vested interest in seeing that young person do well. I think that comes over to them when they speak with us. Uh, so I think that relaxes them a lot because, I mean, once you say hi to them, you come in on uh, maybe, hey, you look great today or something like that, they relax and they start talking. And uh, once the door is open, uh, you know, we try and walk through. So what are some of the needs that, that they need to have addressed? Are they, do they have homes? Are they out of school? Do they need, you know, GEGs? What what do they need that's part of this program? And what do they have to do to make amends for the, the harm that they may have caused? Well, we have a social services representative that also speaks with them. So we know uh, about their background. So we know whether they need to get a GED. We know whether we uh, need to help them with housing. Uh, we need, uh, now the restorative justice court have access to uh, assist them with uh, uh, the unhoused with housing uh, through Heartland. So that's pretty new, and we've referred a couple of people to that program. Mm -hmm. So we're able to help them with many things, uh, jobs, uh, mentorship, uh, uh, a lot of people obtain their LLC. Um, you know, they have their own websites. They are clothing designers, so... We try to gear what they uh, need to do 
to their talents and to help them use their talents to repair the harm that they've done. Well, you may be some of the first people, I'm guessing, who truly have appreciated the talents of these young men. Is, is that possibly true? Uh, Attorney Jackson, I'm going to send that one to you. I mean, yeah. um, talk about that. I, I, I think that this actually, the answer to your question is yes, but that actually goes back to answer your um, earlier question of how we end up breaking through that, that emotional body armor, as you would call it. Yeah. Um, all of this comes out in the circle process where... Um, that's uh, where they meet with two circle keepers and then members of the community. And if there is a victim in the case, um, the victim, they volunteer to be part of the process as well. Or we have a surrogate victim who stands in. So, and, you know, in a gun case where there isn't really a victim, maybe somebody that was impacted or affected by um, gun violence. So as part of that circle process, that's where we build the relations. That's where the restorative justice magic is, is building that community where they, um, they get to share their story, get to be heard. We figure out what led to them being in that instant, you know, led to that moment in time where they committed the offense. And, you know, we use that as a way to figure out where they want to go afterwards. So um, by the end of the circle process, that's when they usually come up with, the participants usually come up with a the agreement that they make with everybody that was part of that circle, which will list the things that they're going to do in order to repair their harm and embed themselves. What what so, are some of the concrete uh, things that they decide that they might like? Let's just say I have a small business, and uh, the particular person stole uh, a bunch of goods from my business. Uh, I'm assuming that might be a typical thing that you're working with. Is, is that right? And and if it is, what would be the path for restorative justice in in that case? Maybe. Um. So it would turn into a conversation of. Um, Obviously, first and foremost, making the, the shop owner whole. So if there's restitution to be paid back, whether they had to pay an insurance claim or something like that, um, they would they would pay that deductible. Um, and the next thing is community service. Um, there's actually been cases where we've seen, you know, individuals uh, vandalizing something like a church or a school. Well, rather than, you know, sending them to prison, the school lets us know, the members of the community let them know, let us know if they want to be part of this program. And we might come up with something like they have to go and do graffiti watch for the next month, where they're the ones that's in charge of scraping off all the other graffiti. Oh, and, that would um, be good. So, and do they get to maybe then do some actual art if they're really into graffiti? I mean, is there a place where they can redirect their artistic talents in that way? Um, so we haven't. I haven't seen that specifically yet, but we do have individuals who, um, in a similar sense. We take their talent and try to, um, I guess, shift it elsewhere. So connecting them with things like music um, studios, music producers, or individuals who might have an artistic talent, and then it comes out in circle in the circle process that they actually want to start their own clothing line. So it's a, well, how how do we help you do that? And then they can come. We help them get their LLC, meet with different graphic designers, and then come and meet and present that to not just us, but in front of their peers at the next um, community court meeting. Um, oh, that's interesting. That, that, Hold up a second. So, the, mm-hmm. so this this circle process not is not just their elders and and venerated people who've been down this road or know a lot about it or are deeply rooted in the community. You're telling me their peers are involved. Could you um, paint a picture of that? Uh, so that's post circle process. Once they um, that's once they actually have the repair farm agreement. Mm-hmm. Um, they come in every week. So on Wednesdays we meet in Inglewood, um, and you know we do a staffing meeting amongst the court stakeholders.
stakeholders, so the uh, public defenders, the attorneys, and everything. While we're doing staffing, the participants hang out in a different room doing a community circle where they get to bond with each other, meet each other. And then once we're done with staffing, um, everybody comes out. So as Judge alluded to earlier, when they sit at that table um, and they see everybody with the vested interest at the table, um, they sit at the table with us, but behind them is where all their their other co-participants are. Huh. Uh, our, our circle judge. Yes. I'm, I'm sorry. Our circle keepers are their peers. Our circle keepers have have been charged with crimes or been incarcerated. One of the circle keepers that we have here actually went through the program, so we hired him. Hired him. So uh, our circle keepers have that understanding of what our participants have gone through because they've gone through it themselves. And then we invite any of our graduates to come back and for themselves to sit in circle with the new participants. So we try to get the people in circle, not only old elders from the community, but any young people that might have been uh, involved in the program or any young people that just come in and have an interest. We often have students that come in from uh, uh, schools that are studying uh, uh, criminal the criminal justice system. So we have them come in and sit in circles so they understand what it's like and what they'll possibly be doing in the future with uh, people they work with for their clients. This just sounds like magic. It just sounds like, I mean, I know it's hard work and energy and emotional energy, but it, it just sounds like you you would wish this for every young person who starts to get into trouble. Could you tell me some of your success stories? Because I'm guessing they're gorgeous. Uh, we've had so many of our participants get their LLC. We've had them get their GEDs. We've had them get uh, jobs. We've got a couple of people that have gotten jobs like uh, with the airlines. We've had people that completed uh, their CC. Uh, L uh, and uh, wait, wait, I need to, what over, is that? I don't know what I'm that sorry, is. That's uh, <laughs> commercial uh, CD. I'm sorry, CD. Commercial driver's license. Oh, okay. So right. for truck uh, drivers, uh, you know, they've gotten jobs as truck drivers. So those are some uh, good paying jobs, and you get a lot of autonomy. That's that's a good one. I like. And that. we also have people that have set up their website, so they have their own business that they're selling. Uh, you know doing things online, they're selling, they make soaps, they make candles, all sorts of things. And then a lot of young people like to cook. So, uh, you know, hopefully they also, uh, we send them to a financial literacy class that helps them learn how to improve and bring up their credit rating, how to manage their finances. So I think maybe hopefully in the future, um, our we had one graduate that was a cook, so hopefully if he ever gets his truck, we'll have him back to cater our graduation. Oh, that would be so cool. And I read um, in the article you had 46 graduates just a few days ago. Is that accurate? Yeah. Um, uh, we have a total for the program mm-hmm. uh, of 46 graduates, but we have a single graduation in June, in the summer, June or July. Got it. Mr. Johnson, you wanted to contribute something about that. Go ahead. Yeah, so each of the three courts, um, we kind of track the graduations uh, separately. Mm-hmm. Um, so the article that you're reading is actually, that you're referring to is from the North Lawndale graduation that was this past uh, November. 
we actually had 48 graduates. One of the articles is a little inaccurate, but um, we had 48 graduates, men and women, um, black and Latinx. Um, so it, it ranges. And then in the Inglewood court, um, that's what Judge is also referring to. Uh, Judge Cooper is now referring to. Um, we also, in the last calendar year, we've had, um, I want to say, over 70 graduates. Um, uh, I so just checked this morning the uh, the number was forty five for the actual grad for the actual uh, certificates issued. Okay, so okay. it's a process. So not everybody graduates okay. at the same time. I'm guessing. So that's right. Mm-hmm. So so Mr. Jackson is correct that if you uh, add up the totals for the year the twenty twenty two to three year, uh, it would be seventy four. This is really impressive. And I know there are going to be people listening who go, well, so what's the cost of this? And, and I'm guessing it's a heck of a lot less than putting people in prison. Uh, but can you speak right. to the numbers a little bit and who's funding it and and, uh, and how that works? Uh, well, the courts fund a portion of it because it is court. A lot of the services that we have are through volunteers. Uh, the financial literacy course is one of the courses that uh, is funded by a private group's parents uh, for nonviolence. Uh, they uh, fund the financial literacy course. We have a uh, gun safety course that we offer once a month. We have that course through a volunteer, a former probation officer mm-hmm. that came, saw the program, liked it. And since we have a number of gun cases, what you'll find is that a lot of the uh, people with the gun possession charges have FOID cards, but they don't have the concealed carry uh, card. Oh. And, you know, they may not know that. I see. So they go through our course and they learn that, you know, you have to take another step. Uh, and take the training to have a concealed carry. So um, a lot of the courses that we supply are are community courses and through volunteers. And if people wanted to help in some way and send a check somewhere, I'm so old, nobody sends a check. But if people wanted to support you in some way, how would they do that? What are the things you need? Well, if they want to participate, say, like, we need mentors, uh-huh. and if they have an established mentorship program, let us know, and we can send people their way. We use uh, um, some in-house mentors. One of our circle keepers, Fred Cooper, no relation, is a mentor. Uh, we send some uh, young people to um, St. Benedict, the Africans, Father Jones mentors them there. I just found out a new program this past a uh, couple of weeks ago, and we want to uh, send um, some people there. We have to check that out. But, uh, you know, if they have a program, we invite everybody to come to our courts on Wednesdays to see if you have a program that you can tell us about. We'd be happy, if you're established, uh, to send people your way. That and we great. also use a mentor from the Chicago Police Department. Uh, Lieutenant Ron Kimball has started mentoring young people. So, I mean, the police 
started getting involved in the program too, which is a great, great sign that we're being successful. I think. I think I think that's a perfect place to leave it. And I guess you're also familiar with Chicago Women in the Trades. But if you're not, we have them on the show. They're they're pretty awesome, and they train women for I've the trades. Them. I know. I've I, seen them. They're, they're great. They're great. Thank you so much for spending time in your morning explaining the program. I'm delighted with its success, and just thank. Thank you. Thank you for doing what you do. I'm, I'm really blown away. Um, and good of you to be with us on WCPT. That's Circuit Court. You're very welcome. Oh. Thank you for having us, and we're happy to do it. Good. Thank you. Cook County Circuit Court Judge Donna Cooper of Inglewood Court, Assistant State's Attorney Jamal J. Jackson. That's the restorative justice program. If you think that we need to be doing more, these folks are doing it. WCPT Radio, I am Tori for Santita Jackson. We can change the world, change the world, change the world. Oh, yes, we can. We can change the world, we can change the world, change the world. This is the Santita Jackson Show. Seven thirty-five. It is WCPT Chicago's Progressive Talk. I am Tori Ryder, in for Santita Jackson, who we very much hope will make a full recovery and be back behind the microphone tomorrow morning. But I want to introduce you to somebody who, well, I mean, how can I describe? Created a program. Um, I guess all by herself. Through Wilbur Wright College, it's an engineering program, and it has been wildly successful in ways that you might not have expected. So please meet Dr. Doris Espiritu. She is the founder of Wilbur Wright College's engineering program. Welcome, Dr. Espiritu, to WCTPT. Thank you so much. Good morning. Good morning. And thank you so much for having us. I'm delighted. Tell me about your program, why it's different, um, and, and the folks who come into it, and where they are dispatched all over the world doing further training, engineering. It's an exciting program. Just give us, a, give us an introduction to it. So again, thank you. Thank you so much for this opportunity. So let me start with... The engineering program was basically piloted in 2015 with nine students. And so why is it different from the rest of the program at City Colleges? It's completely a two plus two program. What does it mean is we are a transfer program that commits for our students to transfer to the four-year top four-year institutions or engineering schools in the country, including the Granger College of Engineering at the University of Illinois, Urbana-Champaign. And why is that a big program? Because um, the Granger College of Engineering is basically a top engineering school in the country. It and is. we can guarantee our students to go to this program. So we started uh, with nine students. Yes. Let, let me pause yeah. you just a moment to reinforce what you're saying. Um when you look at the top-ranked engineering schools, University of Illinois Granger School is in the top, I would say in the top 10. I mean, if you've got MIT, you've got Caltech, you've got the University of Illinois right up there at the very, very top. And you're taking kids who might not have planned on a four-year degree. Is that right? 
Absolutely. They are students who would not originally be accepted to engineering schools. And now they're going to the top engineering schools in the country, including the Granger. And what's wonderful about this program is we can guarantee them to the major, including computer science, which is very, very hard to get in at the Granger. Um, the Granger right now is top five in the country in terms of computer science, and we are their entry to this major. So how do you spot the young people or did they come to you? How do you let them know this is available to them? And do they come in with the kind of um, background where you'd go, oh, this kid's just not ready for engineering school. So I'm assuming because you start them in this uh, Wilbur Wright College program, that might be how some people would assess them, but you see them differently. What do you see? Thank you for that. That is really an important question. So when you see the students, I just know that they are capable. And you are spot on with that. We're community college and we accept everyone. And we are going to send the students to the top institutions, right? Right. So first of all, we assess their math because if you want to be an engineer, you have to be good in math. And that's one of the requirements that uh, the Granger and the top other institutions really need. We assess the math, and then I actually receive, and thanks to this, the National Science Foundation money, a grant in 2018 that actually really, truly grew the program, that we, will be, we were able to offer now a contextualized summer bridge program that teach students math and chemistry, because chemistry is sometimes a killer course for all the students for six weeks and then elevate the preparation. And this program now, I call it as contextualized summer bridge program, has been very, very successful. 54% of our students who join this program automatically get into the Granger College of Engineering. And I'm not even talking about the Granger alone right now. Northwestern would love our students. We now have other programs with the Michigan University. We have Illinois Tech. So every single school within Illinois would love to have our students. But of course, the flagship program is always the Granger College of Engineering. Ah, and so um, you establish this feeder route. You do it with an advanced summer bridge math and chemistry preparation. Um, are these young people coming out of high schools that are known to be good math and science high schools? And, and for some reason, the kids just weren't ready for college. Or are you spotting kids that are coming from schools where they don't usually send kids to schools like Granger? We usually, so when we started it with just letting the students know about their vision, but now we're extremely successful. So, we take students from everywhere in Chicago, and I would say really the entire Chicago. We have students from even as far as Calumet City wow. coming to our program. And these students would never be accepted. I would say, I would just say never, but would not be accepted originally to these big schools. What I have is I do give them an interview, and by talking to these kids, I know they're super talented. But... Either they were not prepared in high schools, they, especially during pandemic, it, yeah. it was really, really hard time for oh, yeah. students, right? Yeah. So I know they're super talented, yet they were not prepared and ready. And university usually, big universities, top institutions would look at 
a certain criteria for admission and we eliminate that, we provide them second chances. So call our program as providing students, talented, underprepared students, I call them as near near STEM students, a second chance. Ah. And I'll give you an example. This okay. is really exciting for me. Last um, last December, last, last year, I have these students who would not be accepted anywhere become our valedictorian through the Bridge Program, valedictorian of Bright College, and then won a Jack and Cook scholarship, and Jack and Cook is like the biggest scholarship in the country, wow. $55,000 per year, wow. and now he's set for success. Students who would never be in accepted to this program, right? Right. Let me ask you some questions about how you support. I've heard, well, let me back up a little bit. It's been my privilege to have a lot of friends who are teachers in high school, Mm -hmm. and they report that there are kids of theirs who are accepted at very prestigious schools, and then they get there, and they sort of fall apart for various reasons. Either they're the only, or there are very few people who look like them in the program, very few people who come from where they come from, they don't have enough money to pay for the extra expenses they may have, um, various reasons, and they and they don't succeed in these prestigious schools. And then there are other programs where the kids are really supported. I, I'm thinking of the Posse program, where the kids are part mm-hmm. of a group where they support each other when they go off to these schools where they may uh, feel like they don't quite belong there. Do you offer any kinds of support for the kids once they make it into a four-year program? Absolutely. This is something really exciting, very close to my heart. Uh, the National Science Foundation that I received support all this programming. So we actually at the right college develop models. And one of the models, in addition to the contextualized bridge, is the holistic and programmatic approach for transfer. And this model provides wraparound support. And I, this is actually, this program is actually based on research. So I look at the belonging and self-efficacy of the student. So self-efficacy is when a student can say, I can do this, and they will work super hard because they can do it. So you give that student the idea that they can, and Uh they will. Uh And then in addition to that, we also... Um, add to this what I call as community of practice. And community of practice are, is a concept where students that work together or think together would succeed together. So I develop a near-peer mentoring program where my first year can mentor the bridge student, my second year can mentor the first-year student, and the student who already transferred at the transfer institution can actually mentor my second-year student. And with all that support, we also hire our own tutors who already experienced the program. So from mentoring to tutoring to really free access to every single support, we build a community together. And I think that is so super successful. I, so I'm imagining, correct me if, if this is wrong, that you're not strictly based then at Wilbur Wright College, that you have people in Urbana, for example, who would support your students because they'd been through your program and they're specifically there to offer them the support they may need emotionally or in other ways to succeed. Is that correct? You're, you have a presence at U of I as well? Absolutely. We have um, our students now creating, they, they house together. They're even saying to me that they're going to create their own organization as the right college 
alumni going to this institution. So it's been super, super wonderful to see the students really build friendship, build support, build community. And if you really need them. So, so for example, two weeks ago, I have a student. I said, where are you? I haven't heard from you. And three hours later, he is in front of me because he knows that my students at Wright College need him. Ah. That's the reason why these students are super, super successful. They know each other and they support each other. I love that. That is so cool. I mean, I've, I've never heard of a program where the students who are still coming, you know, coming along in the program and may not even be done with it come back. Well, I guess I sort of did in the restorative justice program, but this is different. This is kids who are like, they've taken the class, the the, the robotics class, or they've taken the um, physics class. And then you're telling me that they understand that part of their program is to help the next person behind them in line. Is Is that accurate? Yes, absolutely. So one thing that I actually personally preach and very close to my heart is what I call as paying it forward. So we're making a bigger, uh, deeper and wider impact by having these kids learn how to pay it forward. Coming to City College at the right college is really the best value proposition. They will come here with a star scholarship, almost all tuition fee paid for the first two years. You save half of your the cost of tuition fee, and then you transfer to the university with all the support. And then the faculty there also know them. And in addition to that, we also have co-advising. So these students transfer to the transfer institution with already with the knowledge of the transfer institution. So that that transfer transition that is mostly the problem why students failed. It's already eliminated. I love that. So, and I also understand there's been a lot of news lately about community college kids who transfer to four-year schools, and it turns out their their courses and their credits don't transfer. But I believe, and I believe it's Governor Pritzker who's partially responsible for this. It, correct me if I'm wrong. When you move from a two-year college to U of I, any of the universities of Illinois four-year schools, they take your credits and courses. Is that accurate? I think that's the new initiative, but the engineering program at Wright College go deeper than that. So uh-huh. When we started the program, we really went to talk to faculty, so it's faculty to faculty, and we look at the curriculum. So our students are not just prepared with respect to, okay, this course transferred to this course, but the preparation, the quality. I'll give you an example. Our students graduated, and this is the most wonderful news, our students graduated at the Granger College of Engineering competing or probably even better with the students who started there. So, so for example, I have a student who graduated there with 3.94 GPA, got a job offer a year before they graduate because of that. And it's because the quality of education is the one we promise our students. Okay. So if let, they let, know how to do the math here, they know over there too. That does translate. That is true. If you've done the math at Wilbur Wright College, you've done the math. Tell me about non-traditional engineering students. There is a real lack of women in engineering still. There is a real lack of uh, black, indigenous, people of color in engineering. Is that your primary focus, that your primary student body? How do you reach out to women? Tell me about that, how you're bringing in um, a diverse group um, and how you do that. 
Actually, that's one of the biggest success of our program, Tori, because uh, the National Science Foundation grant was really built upon on increasing diversity in engineering. And uh, for our case, well, first, we're a Hispanic-serving institution, so it's naturally fit. Right now, um, because we're now the go-to program for the city, we actually increased our number of black students. So we have 3% originally to now 12% black population. And then our Hispanic, we maintain at around 60%. So we have around 60% Hispanic. We have 12% black population. We have around 12% Asian. So our population is really, really diverse. In terms of women, we also have the Society of Women Engineers, and these students would go and really encourage women to be part of the engineering. So we also increase our women engineering to 25%. And although that's still small, that is still very much higher than what the country averages. Yes. I'm so glad to hear that. I have um, I have one friend who was an um, engineering degree from Michigan and went on to get a master's. She passed away last year. And I know yeah. that one of her, her major um, goals was to bring more women into engineering. I have another good friend who is a retired engineer, engineering professor. And she doesn't speak about it often, but I know that it was harder for her to make her way in the world of academia as a woman and a person of color and an engineer, that there were situations that were particularly difficult for her. Do you prepare people uh, for some of the... I guess now they're called microaggressions. I mean, I just used to call it bad treatment that they may receive and how to handle it if and when it should occur. Or do you just tell them to plow ahead and forget about it? How how do you address that? We, well, the good news is my team are all women. (laughs) So Ah, it's amazing. My my entire team are all women. And so they know that they would see themselves as engineers because the leader of the team are all women. My associate dean is an electrical engineer and she's a woman. And my coordinator is also a chemical engineer and she's a woman. And I founded this program as a woman. So a lot of women or a lot of female now is looking at Yes, we can do it. And we. All, I also have an engineering success seminar where I teach the students how to be resilient, how to have grit, how to deal with the microaggression, or how to deal, how to be professional. So we, I just don't teach these kids how to do the, the engineering technical, but we also teach them professional skills on how to work with in the workforce. So we have industry coming to the class. We have conference, we have workshops to really prepare the students holistically. I'm so glad. That, professional. that is so important. I will tell you a little story. Um, my younger kid who just graduated um, a week ago now from the University of Toronto has a, a good friend, a young woman who is taking a degree in both humanities and the sciences. And she had an internship over the summer where she was sexually harassed. And it, yeah, it was really bad. And then, but here's the weird part. It was wrong on every level. And also someone should have spoken to her about how she presented herself at work. Um, Both of those things are true. She was raised as a young, you know, woman of, of choices and privilege. And she just assumed that she could show up in a work setting 
dressed any way she wanted. And by that, I mean in, in ways that were not necessarily professional for the workplace. So I, 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 she's, it wasn't my place to say anything to her. I love her. And if she asked me, I would tell her what I could tell her when she spoke about the harassment was that it was absolutely wrong, 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 wrong on every level. Nobody should have been asking her about her lingerie. Nobody should have been asking her whether she had a boyfriend. Nobody should have been asking her. And also, if you, if you want to head some of that stuff off at the pass, you don't get to dress any way you want. I mean, that's the reality of life. Do, do you do you have that heart to heart with some of these women or or no? Or is it not necessary? So some students, usually women, they would come to my office and my office is always open for every single student who needs support. And I do dress differently than everyone. And I always tell them this, be prepared for this. If you want to dress like this then you have to be prepared for the consequences, right? So we talk about how to prepare. We talk about how to dress, how to... But I always tell people to develop their own brand. Don't conform. I'm non-conformist. I, I want to change the world by changing something, by making something new. So if I dress with miniskirt as an engineer... Well, I dress as a minister as an engineer, but don't you ever dare to come and harass me. So I teach students how to prepare themselves, how to develop their own brand, and don't be shy about those brands. Because so wait, 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 I have to is, ask you, you. Did you did you wear a mini skirt early in your career, or is that a privilege you earned later when you were Dr. Esprit to oh. running a program? No, no. I'm always, I always wear a miniskirt when I was young. My, really? It comes from my father. Yeah, oh my, my father gosh. always like, don't wear those because, because you look like this. So I think it came from my father supporting me to do this. And so I become a doctor of spirit too. I become who I am. I maintain that brand. And it, it, it's funny, but no one dared to harass me because no, you can't. I will not tolerate any. That is so interesting because I, when I came up in radio, rock radio, worked with a bunch of jocks, my response was, you know what, I'll just dress like they dress and then I'll eliminate that element of it also was very comfortable. I mean, they all wore jeans and boots and that was fine for me. But I I would not advise a young woman going into a corporate setting um, or a, a, a government science project setting. I would not advise her to wear like a crop top and a mini skirt. I would say, look, you oh, know, oh. show your show your <laughs> professional talent first. And then once you've established yourself as a professional talent, you want to walk around in a mini skirt. That's so fascinating. We come from completely different places on this. And and I uh, completely agree, though. I completely agree with you. It really depends on the individual, right? But for me, I believe in maintaining your identity, yet be able to know how to be professional. So there, there is a perfect balance for that. And what I teach in the workplace or right now is to dress properly, dress properly, not too not too unprofessional, but you have to maintain who you are and what you're comfortable with. 
And you have to deal with that as time goes by, right? So as you gain your identity, but maintain it. Don't let other people ruin you, but be professional. If you have, in the laboratory, I have to dress, I have to have close shoes because it's dangerous. If it's for the safety, if the... If you need to wear hard hat, go. You have to to be professional, but don't conform with what is people taught to be. Huh? That's so interesting. I mean, again, using my own life as a personality, I'm completely not conforming. But did I want a lot of attention around my body when I was tiny and little and adorable and you know young and cute? No, I did not. I didn't. I did not want that attention. I mean, I would, if I could have, I would have cut a hole out of one of those contractor bags and just worn that. Um, I, my friend, who who is a voiceover talent of of tremendous success, calls it the "What are you look? What are you, male, female, pregnant, not pregnant? What what are you under there?" But it's interesting that you feel that presenting yourself as yourself is an asset for women in engineering. I'm going to have to think a lot about that um if as with the minute that we have left what would you most like to have people know about your kids that you're sending through your program how how would you like them to be seen well in general our students are i would say really i'm not biased with the best students um (laughs) they are now employed everywhere i have students in microsoft i have students in Facebook, I have students in IBM, I have students now in Lockheed Martin with a military defense company. Think about those big industry where our students are going. So they are not going to be disadvantaged coming to Wright College for the engineering program because every single school, university wants them and big industry wants them as well. But if they're interested in knowing more about the program, we have an information session on Tomorrow at 6 p.m. at Wright College. And this is when, when I really meet the students and talk to them about this opportunity because it's really when I meet them and talk to them when they realize this is the place for okay, them. Okay, so it's quickly, we just have seconds. We just have seconds. Yeah. How, how can they reach out? Um, they, they can come to Wright College directly or they can go to engineering that ccc.edu is our website. All right. Well, that'll get them there or six o'clock tomorrow at Wright College. Thank you so much, Dr. Espirito. It was lovely meeting you, Dr. Espirito, and much success to you in the program. Santita Jackson's show, WCPT. Thanks for being with us today. It's just about eight.